Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Elsbeth van Peridon, a sinologist, journalist, and lover of China fashion, lifestyle, and urban culture. In 2018, Elsbeth founded The China Temper, a print and digital publication which offers a gritty slash grungy look at contemporary China through a fashion-focused lens. Aside from her work with the China Temper, Elsbeth serves as an editorial consultant at the Beijing Review, an editor at Where Global Magazine, and a contributor to SubChina and Radii China. On today's show, we look at contemporary China through the lens of fashion and culture. We discuss the new thinking around fashion and individuality among China's younger generation. We discuss China's fashion scene as it is today and how it differs from other major fashion meccas like New York. We talk about China's fashion icons as well as exploring China's urban underground scene and the future of fashion in China. Enjoy. Shanghai doesn't have an underground. Everything in Shanghai is above ground. Okay. That's because it is the shop window of China. It's fancy. It's glam. It's glitz. It's fashion. It's money. But everything is above ground. It doesn't have to hide anything. It's just there. I mean, it's there. It's out there. It's, there is no underground scene in Shanghai. Beijing, however, because it is the capital, it is a political center. Not everything is out in the open. Home to over four billion people, the Asia Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under thirty population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early stage tech companies enter the Asia Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to the negotiation brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Elspeth, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thank you, Todd. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. How about a brief introduction of yourself,、uh, your background, and as always, how you ended up in China? Sure. Well, it's very simple. My name is Elspeth van Barium. I am Dutch. I grew up in Belgium, and I am a sinologist and a journalist. And just you know, somebody who happens to be into fashion a little bit as well. And it's actually quite simple. How did I end up in China? Well, in high school, or in, I should say in secondary school, I did classical studies, right? So Greek, Latin, you know, classical studies. You know, you're you, then afterwards you you attend university. That's what you do. But I had no idea whatsoever. What to go and study, and then one fine day, I was at my grandmother's, and she said, "You know what, China? Why don't you just go and study Chinese? I think it's called sinology. I think there's a future there." And I simply went, "Okay." <laughs> so that's how I ended up doing Chinese studies at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, and then.、Um, I moved to China. Yes, that is rather straightforward. 
I know there is no deep whatever. Right. I mean, you know, some of us have these dart throws at maps. Some of us have these very long, odd, circumstantial ways of of kind of just backing into China without intention or purpose. So, um, you know, that's that's great. Um, everybody has a different way of getting in. You know, we are going to get into um, discussing a lot about your projects, including China Temper. We're going to talk about China's fashion scene. But I want to start I want to start the conversation with discussing the term contemporary China. Okay, so I want to ask you to talk to us about contemporary China through a fashion and culture focused lens. What does contemporary China look like to you and how does it differ from city to city? It's actually not an easy question to me. It looks well, I think the image that still kind of reigns or rules the roost abroad I think a lot of people have still have a certain more bland, gray image uh, when it comes to the Chinese and their way of dressing. But of course, with economic development comes the development of the individual, and fashion is a major part of that. It is a complete reflection of what's going on in society. And we all know China grew very swiftly across the significantly short span of time. And this was reflected in the clothing. And so let me get to it. It's very vibrant. It's colorful. It's vivacious. You you go from, and this happened within a decade. And to be honest, actually, mostly within six years. And you go from, yeah, a more gray culture, not standing out to just doing everything you possibly can to stand out in the streets and yeah, expressing yourself. And how does this differ from city to city? I have to add, of course, that when I'm talking about this vivacious landscape, I'm referring to first tier cities. I'm referring to the mega cities of Beijing, Shanghai. And then we have the up and comers, um, Chongqing, Guangzhou, Shenzhen. And there is a significant difference between the color palettes in both in all these cities. But when it comes to Beijing and Shanghai, they are in full swing and there is nothing holding them back. When you go to Shenzhen, Chongqing, Guangzhou, it's not bland anymore, but it's also not as red hot as the first tier cities are. So it, it reflects a sense of, um, yeah. I think Vivacious describes it very well. I remember during my times when I first got to Dalian in 2007 and my thoughts, naive as they probably must have been, was that it seemed like in China, the younger generation, especially the, the female young generation of China, were taking heavy cues from Japan and potentially Korea. I wouldn't say they were nailing it. It was kind of a bit of a mishmash. They were going through a learning curve. Uh, that's actually really good. If So if I may, um, when, well, funny thing is, so when I was, when you're studying Sinology anywhere in the world outside of China, you have to spend one year on the mainland or in Taiwan to up your language game. So in 2007, 2008, I spent one year in Beijing. And um, 
back then it was still, you know, Hello Kitty gloves everywhere and indeed very much taking note from what, you know, South Korea was wearing. I think at that point in South Korea, the whole coupley outfits, the matchy-matchy outfits were hot. But it was a mishmash indeed. But the funny thing here is that Japan, South Korea, or South Korea, Japan, and China, when it comes to fashion, they have all gone, they've all followed the same trajectory, which is um, South Korea in the 70s, 80s, Japan in the 80s, 90s, China in the 2010s, which is you go from being underdeveloped to economic development. And like I just said, the final economic development, okay, then there's the creation of a middle class, which wasn't there before. So the middle class is born. They start making a bit more money. They get a nicer house. They get a nicer car. Basic needs are met. And then you get to the development of the individual, which, you know, Fashion, well, you could say fashion is the kind of the, it's a daily conversation between you and the world. And also, I'm not interested in a new pair of pants or a new pair of shoes. It's about the story behind the shoes and the pants, especially in countries like China right now. So South Korea had that. Japan had it. Um, for example, in the 90s, all these Japanese Miyake, well, he's been around since the late 80s. Uh, just, you know, these Japanese minimalist designers, they also made it into uh, onto uh, the, the catwalks of Paris, and they became staples in the fashion scene. And so they all went, followed that trajectory, and China was the third one to do so. So it's a very, very natural evolution of things. And I think it's quite normal to start off with a mishmash and then... You kind of come into your own. I also think, by the way, that applies to people in general. Yeah. And, I, and I, you know, I noticed it not just in the fashion, but in the makeup as well. Like I started really seeing them come a long way. Like, wow, more yeah. and more artistry on the face was starting to they were starting to nail it and find their niche and find their kind of game on, exactly. in that yeah. regard as well. And I thought, wow, like they're really, really doing this well. You have written that there's. New thinking among China's younger generations about individuality and their expressions of themselves. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? How this has all drastically changed? And then there's a lot of cultural family dynamics. I mean, the the, the years of Mao Zedong are still extremely fresh in the memories of, of most parents and grandparents in China as well. So it's not been an easy road to kind of bring about and, and bring that, that individuality and expression out. So please, how does that manifest itself today? Well, that's the interesting thing about actually living here. Because you get to experience these things all, you get to experience them all firsthand, right? You're like not no longer an observer from Europe or New York or whatever. It's really you're here. So these, yeah, you every roof contains, you know, three generations. And indeed, we go from those who went through the Cultural Revolution. And then you have, let's just, just you know, those born in the 70s or right after the millennials. So basically, those are like Baling uh, Ho, born after 1980. So the millennials, and then you have the Gen Zs, born after 19, uh, 1990. So the Jiu Ling Ho. I shouldn't have said there are three. Usually, there are three generations on the wrong one roof, but I should just delete that from the narrative here. 
when you look so when you look at those who went through the cultural revolution and the, the, the starvation and god knows what and also the what you said communism you're you know you don't know what you're thinking until you're told what to think people were dressed alike it was it was the epitome of gender equality in fashionable terms. The mouse suit, you know, like green, gray, we're all the same. Nobody stands out. Nobody's inferior. No. It was the, 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 the it was unisex um, defined. And then, okay, so you move on, you open up the country, and then you have a generation born in the 80s. And that's interesting for me because those are my peers and it's like they're caught not between a rock and a hard place but they're caught between that thinking that that soberness of the 60s and 70s and the well at times excessive behavior of those born after 1990 and 1995 alone 2000 and so you see people my age, they are more willing to express themselves, but they want to look nice, but they don't care as much. So yeah, the individuality was developing, but they were still caught between tradition and innovation. I think that's the way to put it, Tradi caught between tradition and innovation. And I can imagine that's a very tough place to find yourself in. Still also the whole xiao, the filial piety, caring for the parents, but do wanting to go out there and study abroad. And so, they, but they were slowly developing a mind of their own and clothing wise, it became very, I'm going to say this way, Western, you know, just Western, not hardcore fashionista Western style, not, not yeah, Parisian. Not full emo. Not full emo, oh, yeah, shaman. They've done that though, huh? Those born in the eighties, they've done that—the whole emo thing—and it's now coming back. By the way, they did do that. There was, a, yeah, punk, yeah, goth punk. That was because I was talking to a colleague the other day. She because I thought shaman or emo, which has been trending this year. Like, oh, uh, it means the same in 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 the Western here. emo. No, it's chapter It's just about the same. But Shamatu, the punk movement, I thought it belonged to this era. But then a colleague of mine was like, no, 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 no. I had people in high school when we were like 15. So in the 90s, late 90s, who were dressed like that. And they were the runt of the litter. And funnily enough, they're still considered the runt of the litter, if you want to put it that way. It's not me saying that. It's society saying that here. So they were doing that. But there was kind of a, a, a little blip. I think most of them just, you know, they, they dress in a Western way, but not all out. And then you get to those born after 1990. They are, they grew up in this society that was developing at the speed of light, or I like, I like to say lightning, with everything just being thrown at them from all the corners of the world. And there's all these influences coming in. And they were they 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 couldn't identify anymore with the traditional values, well, to a certain extent, but when it comes to clothing, no way. And they were just like, I'll just take all of these influences and roll with it. 
and not in a mishmash kind of way, but really like, this is what I think it's cool. This is what sets me apart from the rest. And this is my conversation with the world. So they developed a wholly new attitude towards clothing. You know, no longer like, oh, okay, yeah, that's nice. It's from the West. It's safe, but it's nice. And I like it. It's comfortable. No, no, no. It was really just, this is who I am. See me. Which can't be easy when you're still, a lot of them, if you're unmarried, you still live at home, which is a very kind of interesting juxtaposition. I just can't help but think that, you know, when you when you leave home or you go off to school, you what have you, you start to get out on your own. Part of that freeing thing is that, you know, you're you're in control of your own closet. And nobody else is seeing it. Uh, and, you know, when you come and go from the house, it's not like you're running into grandma through the living room wondering what the heck is she wearing? <laughs> I, think, I, I think grandma got lost a long time ago. I think grandma's just like, Who's <laughs> whatever. I don't know anymore. I think grandma is, um, yeah, just let it be, let it be something like that at this point. But there's actually, um, speaking of the individuality thing and what you just mentioned about living at home. And, and again, I am, I need to emphasize that I refer a lot to first tier cities. I mean, when you, again, when you travel to travel to lower tier cities, there will be a different landscapes. You know, there's a difference between where I live in Sanitun and even so Chaoyang district and for example, Xicheng district in Beijing, there's a difference, you know, in the way that I do need to, you know, like a disclaimer, but so the living at home, or with your parents and individuality, there is a rise, a significant rise. I should look up the numbers. Uh, we covered them with Beijing Review of people in their 20s moving out on their own without flatmates, just you know, getting their own apartment because they want to be them. They want to be themselves. Now, it does come with an issue, by the way, of many of them just working online and earning their money through live streaming and only leaving the house to walk the dog. But that's a whole different story. But so this is happening. There is a rise in the number of 20-somethings venturing out on their own, getting their own apartments. Like, basically, like most of us did in, in Europe, for example, right? After you go to university, but also after university. So that is a, that's happening right now. Okay, it's time. Let's let's move. Let's talk about China Temper. Let's start out with maybe talking a little bit about what it is and what it's like running this passion project in China today. Well, China Temper is actually this came about, if I may briefly introduce it, it's some um, so when I was selling in Beijing that one year, that mandatory year, at the end of that year, academic year, I was invited to a fashion show by Xander Zhou. And um, who's now a pretty well-known name, uh, also in the whole Milan, Paris, New York, London fashion week scene. So anyway, so and the thing is also Sinology, it's a very, we can call it a fancy degree. But when I was invited to that fashion show in Beijing, it hit me. It was one of those aha moments. It was like, oh, the sky opened up and there was light. I said to myself, China fashion publishing, that's what I want to do. I want to look at China through fashion and write about it. Yeah, so the years went by. I you know, was in Europe, finishing up, then moved to China in 2010 to start working. Also started working for the 
state media and writing for other platforms. And I just set up this blog under a different name back then and started jotting down stuff about China through fashion. And then that evolved and it evolved. And now we have, um, then I didn't do it for a few years because I was busy with work and I don't know, you know, life, life, whatever. And then um, when I left China in January, 2016, I went back to school, studied journalism, got a master's in that. And it was all related to temper because I had the idea in the back of my mind always. And then in 2018, I started taking temper more seriously. Now we have eight contributors, two translators, and it's a step-by-step process. It's quite easy, I have to say, to run this because I don't touch upon sensitive topics. And this brings me to also my job at Beijing Review. I work there as an editorial consultant. Beijing Review is a weekly English newsprint. For them, I also started filming, or they no, they gave me the opportunity to start filming. It's all about looking at China through fashion and urban culture. And it's like going head to head with your bosses every now and then. But we always find common ground. For example, next week, I'll be interviewing these um, senior models, fashion grandmothers. These are women who in their golden years, it's really like the golden girls. They didn't want to sit at home and just take care of the grandkids, which is quite normal here. Um, No, they went out there and they started modeling. And they actually, they're they're very tall, by the way. They're all 5'9", which is uh, nice for a 70-year-old woman. And, um, right? And uh, especially Chinese women. And so they started modeling. And they did not just stick to modeling. No, 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 no. They set up their own business. They are creating minority-inspired accessories and selling these. They are on live streams all three times a week, different live streams with different uh, Wang Hong, so online celebrities. And I'm interviewing them next week. And we were coming up with questions because it's like looking at China through fashion across a period of 40 years since China opened up. That's kind of how I saw it. But then my bosses came in with, you have to mention the Cultural Revolution. You have to mention the starvation. I was like, oh, am I allowed to do so? Yes, you are. And that's not going to reflect on me. No, 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 no. There's no denying of it. So it really, um, I don't, I don't do... I'll put it this way. I only make fashion statements. I don't make political statements. And then it's quite easy to create content and get the opportunities to do this filming, etc. Because I'm telling stories about China from a completely different angle. Nobody's doing it. And it's the ultimate soft power. They should be. They should be very happy about that. <laughs> uh, you know, fashion is soft power. It is, and I don't indulge in. Mm, oh, everything's so great. I I don't do that kind of stuff. I just, you know, I'm a sinologist. 
I'm very happy to be here. I've been given so many opportunities and new opportunities here. And I've grasped, I've grabbed them all now in 2021. And yeah, that's what I do. That's, I've never done anything else. I tell stories about China, but from a completely different angle. And I also don't feel the need to get political. So that's content creating is actually quite easy for me here. I've never had any issues, which might come as a surprise to many listening to my very non-intellectual explanations. In circumventive ways, we've talked about China's fashion scene, but I would like to now pointedly ask you to intently, you know, uh, answer the question of just how would you characterize China's fashion scene today? Is it trend setting? I wouldn't even call it trend setting. I would call it trend dictating. This is my thing with, um, I get bored easily. Also, like if there's a designer and there's, you have to imagine a lot of Chinese designers. I've also seen them when I was spending time in New York. Yes, also did a New York stint, you know, in between and then returned to China. Um, I met these guys at Parsons, uh, the new school of design. And some of them then got rave reviews at Shanghai Fashion Week. Uh, but I, given I knew them already when they were still in school, I could see there had been no evolution. So having said that, I get bored quite easily. And I don't like it when I don't see any evolution. And that's exactly what I've been seeing. And I'm going to you know, antagonize a lot of people with this. But in, in, in Europe and the U.S., what innovative fashion? It's the same thing every season. And don't get me started on pre-fall, fall, pre. I don't even know anymore. Cruise collection. It's the same. There is nothing interesting about it. There are no interesting stories it's boring it became boring after the 90s i think what the 90s had was still that whole supermodel vibe and like the real the original supermodels right um and yeah it, it's just boring and and then you turn to china and so again yes some designers who are met here with rave reviews i'm like well but I'm not going to you know, publicly state that, oh, no, I saw them in their studio at Parsons. It was exactly the same. It's the same season after season. That's boring, too. But at least what they're, you know, most people, it's, it's out there. It's, it's over the top. And many of them really, really have a story to tell. And by that, I mean a social story. For example, there's one brand in Chinese based in New York. Yeah, I got to put it that way. And they're called Private Policy. And they, now these guys, every season, they tackle a social topic or something that is at play in society. It was in, uh, let me think, in support of LGBTQ plus, that's the correct expression now, sorry, rights, or breaking down Asian stereotypes, or the collections even inspired by the, 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 what is it, the Stonewall riots, or collections to highlight the South Asian fishing industry. Yeah, they're one of my favorites. That's why, that's why I'm like, you know, I know this. They, 
there are stories behind these collections that are far more interesting than what your average designer or brand will have to say in Europe or the US. So, and again, the fashion here is now because they feel on top of the world, huh? It's Veni Vidi Vicky, right? That's what this, the, the vibe is, Veni Vidi Vicky vibes. So the fashion is outlandish. The hair, the makeup, the nails, the this, the that. It's, it's you know, also when I show pictures to my friends in Europe, they're also like, that is unbelievable, unbelievable. They've all visited before, right? So they too can tell the evolution. And there's even, yeah, I wouldn't call it a decade, but like six years or something. It's unbelievable what has happened here. Yeah, I think everybody could, you know, take a cue from... Uh, China's fashion landscape in that regard, and the designers as well. Like, tell a story. Don't just give me another pair of pants. Excellent. Now, after all that, and you did talk about your time in New York and whatnot, so I feel very comfortable asking you, can you differentiate how China's fashion scene, and, and you can take that in any way, like from from how they shop, where they find fashion trends, uh, who they're following, you know, all, all the things are on right. the table. But how do we differ? How does the, the, the fashion scene differ there from that of potentially North America or Europe? Everybody's influenced by social media, of course, in this day and age. But it all started in China. I mean, when you're talking about social media influence or online influence, it's, it's China is it's insane. It, it, it's where it all began, basically, if I may put it that way. I know a lot of people will not agree with that, but I'm putting it that way. Anyway, a lot of people get their cues online and from online celebrities and no longer from the West, by the way. That's maybe here and there, but generally speaking, they look inwards, not outwards for their fashion inspo. That has ended. That sounds very, I mean, that's a pretty bold statement to make but let's just put it that way okay that has ended um and they look at live streams because people just come up with stuff it's a country of 1.4 billion people and, and even people in 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 the outskirts of tibet are showcasing their folkloric costumes on Douyin, so the og version of tiktok that's how that's how everybody's online here. And you also have, yeah, how does it differ from, um, well, I think I've already mentioned or made it very clear that it's outlandish here. And what I see in Northern America and Europe, I find it quite boring. But also um, there are a lot of shows here online, and those are also often responsible for propelling certain trends and for example last year you had two shows that were huge a reality show sisters who make waves and then the first ever female monologue uh, series courtesy of tencent called hear her that was massive massive and that inspired this whole you know, female empowerment movement, which resulted in, you know, one of these contestants, which resulted in, a, in, a, in an array of things. Let me explain. So one of these contestants on Sisters Who Make Waves, she was wearing these oversized xi um, so Western style suits. And 
that turned into Meng Mei style. And also that propelled the, or spurred on the whole Chao A, Chao A. So A is alpha, in particular alpha female. Chao, Chao Ji, the Chao, Chao means extreme. So you're a real alpha female. And that was linked with Meng Mei style, like oversized suits and this and that. But then paired with, for example, a bra. And this is something we do in the West as well. But here, I, I would say that if I wear a suit with just a bra or a corset or something underneath in Europe or North America, I think it, it, we consider that sexy or it's sexualized, which is fine. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is here, it, it, it's not, not sexualized. So that's kind of always an interesting observation. Here it's just like, oh yeah. Whereas in the West, it's still like, oh, it's a bra and suit. So there's there's a difference in the perception thereof here. And um, yeah, so I think social media platforms, especially Weibo, still it's like the, the the Twitter equivalent, China's Twitter equivalent, with billions of people on there. No, I don't know. One billion people on there? I'm not sure. And uh, Douyin, so Chinese version of TikTok, nowadays have a huge influence. But it's all coming from the inside, not the outside. Who would you say are some of the, the, the key players, let's call them tastemakers, in China's fashion scene, either today or historically? Is there a local equivalent to the to the Anna Wintours or the Coco Chanel's or Virgil Abloh's? I would dare say there is not. And I know people might be like, what are you talking about? There was Angelica Chung, who was uh, editor in chief of Vogue China for blah, blah, 10 years. And there are several other big editors, but they are not. That's not an Anna Wintour who really, when she took over Vogue America, Vogue US, in 89, published a front cover with, um, it was the first time a pair of jeans was published on the front cover, paired with a Chanel vest, I think. And that that blew everybody away. That was, that was trend setting. That was talk about making or taste making. That was the definition thereof. I don't see that here. What I do see here is, I reiterate myself, or I repeat myself, sorry, is the the Wang Homes, the online celebrities. Uh, also celebrities in general, when they promote something, it sells out within a minute. Um, but do you have these tastemakers, these fashion dictators, like these super fashion icons? Well, maybe in history, you know, you had like Wu Zetian, eh, the one empress China ever had. Yeah, sure. She she wielded some influence there. Let me see. Oh, you had um, Song Meiling, the wife of, uh, second wife of Sun Yat-sen. She was a fashion icon. And she was trendsetting. But nowadays, mm, no, not really. No, none of those like iconic bastions of fashion it's very interesting i appreciate that 
I want to talk to you a little bit about China's urban underground scene. And that is making a bit of a leap of faith. But, you know, we know that you've mentioned it a couple of times. So we're just going to assume that there is and and feel confident we can ask you about it. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it. How would you describe it? Underground. For example, Shanghai doesn't have an underground. Everything in Shanghai is above ground. Okay. That's because it is the shop window of China. It is, I refer to it as the Chutong of China, the shop window of China. Indeed, it's fancy, it's glam, it's glitz, it's fashion, it's money, right? But everything is above ground. It doesn't have to hide anything. It's just there. I mean, it's there, it's out there. It's like, hi, y'all. There is no underground scene in Shanghai. Beijing, however, because it is the capital, it is a political center, not everything is out in the open. And I'm not saying this in a, there's nothing illegal about it. It's just certain things like, okay, just, it's fine, but let's not, let's not parade them around, right? Shanghai parades them around. Beijing cannot parade them around. So it's a bit more low-key, underground, whatever. There's nothing politically wrong with it or just in general nothing generally wrong with it so the you know this urban underground scene thing how would you describe it what are some of the key trends you're seeing there do some of those trends end up swimming and becoming mainstream over time do they do they do they hit the big time yeah first off tattoos oh good point tattoos that's really come into into fashion there I'm the only person. I'm like a, I'm a blank canvas. I am a tattoo virgin. I am the only one amongst my friends, foreign and Western. I think there's one guy who also doesn't have any, like myself. We're the only two. It, it started out as underground, as taboo. We've written about this with temper. We, we've written about, um, the origins of Chinese tattoo culture, but also, um, about women tattoo artists and women in tattoo culture. It, it used to be taboo. And I'm not saying that at my job, people have tattoos. That's also, I mean, you know, but here where I live, you know, the hot hip happening in crowd, each and every one of them, my friends, all of them, and usually multiple ones. And backs are covered, uh, legs are covered, celebrities, all of them, most of them. So tattoos is the ultimate example thereof. Of course, other than that one, I'm thinking, I was thinking of the whole lingerie thing. Did it start more underground or? What whole lingerie thing? I mean, the the, the suit paired with a bra, uh, the wearing of lingerie on the outside, right. basically, but in a non-sexual way, right? Like I, I mentioned before, right? it's really, it's it's like, oh, I'm. Picking up groceries. Oh, this is me buying some gum. Yeah, I'm wearing a bra. And yeah, no, nobody even bats an eyelid. Whereas if I were to do this in Europe, people would be like, um, you should put something on. Right. So there, that's a very interesting. We haven't written anything about that yet, but that's always been something at the back of my mind. And the lingerie. Yeah, just the wearing of. I'm not sure if that came from the underground, to be honest. I think that it did not. I think it just happened certain things just happened they just pop up the whole wearing of lingerie on the outside it's been popular for quite some time 
other things, no, I think because underground, it's also the punk scene. Sure, there are elements of that popping up in mainstream trends, but that's normal. That's we see that anywhere and everywhere in the world, you know, like the uh, certain belts with spikes or something. Yeah, that's completely, yeah, you see that here too. And it comes from the punk scene, sure, which is underground, sure. And I did see, by the way, that whole Shama Te thing that I referred to earlier. There was a designer at Shanghai Fashion Week in October, this October, who a very well-known designer, Chinese from Xiamen, Sanquans is his brand, Sanquans. And he was boasting these goth punk Shama Te hairstyles on the catwalk. So that was quite interesting to see. We're actually writing about that very soon, but um, I wouldn't call that mainstream just yet. Where do you think fashion is going? Is it going in a certain direction that we can anticipate over the next few years? Is it following um, any other trends um, or is it diverting or taking its own shape and form in some way that maybe I can ask you to comment on? Um. Well, it's changing all the time. But what's interesting here, that whole female empowerment thing, the whole oversized thing, that's been around for a year or two, I would say. It was like it was further driven by these uh, shows that I talked about, Hear Her and Sisters Who Make Waves. But it was around already. People were doing it. Um I think here we are mostly one key feature here in fashion that I should have mentioned is gender fluidity, genderless fashion. And that's probably what will keep increasing here. Or that's my guess. I might be way off. You never know. But androgyny was in my book almost invented here with the whole Jingju. You know, Beijing Opera, it doesn't get more androgynous than that, or in my book again. So I think, yeah, at leisure is big here, but I'm not talking about that. Um, genderless, gender fluid clothing will keep growing, despite the fact that, and I know this was reported in the Western media recently, again, there was this whole thing about the sissy pants. You know, Chinese men are becoming too effeminate in their ways of dressing, their makeup, their earrings, etc. This has been around for a long time. You have different terms for it. So I'm not quite sure why it was reported again, but this was a big deal two years ago. But that's also part of the generalist movement. And it, it's not stopping. It's not because it's being criticized that it's stopping. I think... Both genders are very happy with this whole gender fluid uh, wardrobe thing and just kind of throwing it all together. So that's definitely a staple of the Chinese wardrobe. That's excellent. Thank you so much for doing this. Do you have maybe one or two other guest recommendations? We, we kind of like to take the podcast with you 
and call out a couple of other people and say, hey, you were nominated, almost like this is the Ice Bucket Challenge. You were nominated to join us on the podcast um, by such a such person. And would you be up for, for joining us? So who do you think would be a great guest, somebody you might yourself love to listen to that you think we could reasonably have a good shot at getting on the show? I would say Jake Newby. He was managing editor of that's Shanghai for five to 10 years. And more, more importantly, he was the managing editor of Radii China for a couple of years. He only left in left Radii in uh, June of this year. He's extremely well versed in music and Maltai. Yeah. <laughs> this one, music and Maltai. Music and Maltai. Boy, that would that would be a great YouTube series. There you go. Yeah. Jake Jake Newby, Music and Maltai or Maltai Music. That's one. And I think Anthony Tao, he was, I believe, the managing editor of SubChina. Thanks to him, I also got to write for SubChina last year, this year. So that's very cool. And uh, but he he's he's been living here for Ooh, 15 years and he funnily enough and this is i just thought of it just now he was the first managing editor of radii china in beijing so there you go anthony Tao of sub china elspeth thank you so much for coming on the show today it has been an absolute pleasure i can't thank you enough for this wonderful look inside of telling us about china temper and and diving deep into the fashion scene of china it's a it's a very unique topic that we haven't covered in 120 episodes on the show so thank you very much for being on the show today thank you for having me growing a company is hard doing it in a foreign market exponentially so the best piece of advice i can give you is not to do it alone when you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.